Thanks, Andy. Great. Hi, everybody. Um, today is the second part of a mini-series under, well, in the summer we're looking at people of faith and how we multiply our faith. And last week I started on the book of Nehemiah. Now, some of you weren't here last week, and youth, I'm sorry, you weren't in last week either. So I am going to give you a very quick rehab, very quick recap of the book of Nehemiah. Um, but how, um, as I said last week, the book of Nehemiah is kind of known for one thing. Right. If, if you know a bit about the Bible, and if you don't, that's fine. But if you do, you'll know that Nehemiah, usually you say Nehemiah, and the next few words are walls, building walls. Right? Now, I'm not sure of any other person that I think of, other than one person who I don't really want to think about, who talks about building walls. Okay? Um, but Nehemiah, it's kind of, you think, oh yeah, Nehemiah, what's that about? It's about building walls. The truth is, there's so much more going on in this story than just the actual walls. If, if you look at the story, there's like 12 chapters, and the bit about building the walls takes about two, two chapters, two, something like that. Um, so, and we looked at some of that last week. In fact, we looked at part one of Nehemiah last week, and I said, I said if, if part one of Nehemiah is about rebuilding walls, well, in part two today is about renewing hearts. It's about what goes on inside the walls. There's so much to learn from this book. City walls back in the days of Nehemiah, I mean, we're talking a long time ago. Um, city walls were the way that a, security, a, a city maintained its security and therefore everything about the way that city life and life functioned, economics and peace. So I, used to, I grew up in Leeds and um, we used to go over here now and then to, anybody recognize this place? Anybody recognize these places? Oh, come on. There's a big giveaway in the far side there. This, this is York, which is the ancient Roman city of York. And we used to go there quite regularly when I was a kid. And we used to visit. And my parents would make me walk around the walls, and which I quite enjoyed. And obviously, they've become a tourist attraction now. Um, but in York, as in many other cities, over periods of history, basically what would happen is people would build a wall around the city. And the wall would equal peace and security. Okay, now the walls are tourist attractions and it's a whole sort of historic and ancient things. And there are lots of other ways of maintaining peace and security. But that was, this was the main way back then. Um, and that goes back to, you know, ancient times, the time of Jerusalem, which is what this story is all about in Nehemiah. By the way, if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn it up. We're going to start around, I'm going to read a few bits from four or five different chapters. We're going to start around chapter five today. Um, but this is, I was thinking about this, and city walls are one thing, but this story is really about what happened to God's people once they got back inside the city walls. See, it's one thing to have your walls built, which is what Nehemiah did, led the people in rebuilding the walls, make the place safe. It's all very well to have some really good-looking walls and structures, but what if what's inside it is not up to scratch? And that just made me think of another place I used to go to. As I said, I lived in, I grew up in Leeds, and there's this place in Leeds called Kirkstall Abbey, and it's um, just it's just one of those tourist attractions in Leeds. I think I've been there two or three times, and I just looked it up this morning, and I thought, in the nice light and at a distance, that looks like quite a nice church, doesn't it? I mean, quite a lot of the structure is an old Cistercian monastery, and it's there's there's nothing inside it. There's a nice museum, and it's a really nice tourist attraction, and a lot of the walls are still up. But as you can see from the other photo, when you go inside, there's, not, there's nothing there. It's just open to the elements. 
And it struck me that this is probably quite a good metaphor for what might have happened if Nehemiah hadn't led the people of God, not just into rebuilding walls, but into actually a renewal of hearts. What you'd have is a lovely looking building on the outside. You'd have beautiful looking walls, but nothing going on on the inside. And that's kind of deceptive, isn't it? And so as I mentioned last week, just a quick overview of the book. We're not reading the whole thing. Um, and we, the, I mainly focused last week on the first chapter on Nehemiah's prayer and how a leader who's got incredible gifts and incredible strat- strategic leadership skills spent pretty much the first several days and weeks of this um, project on his own in prayer before God. Then he got to the preparation, then he got to the rebuilding, and today we're looking at the renewal. So very quickly, what I talked about last week was um, how Nehemiah is often known as a man of strategy, faith and strategy, but actually what I really write, admire him for is a man of, being a man of faith. And he prayed this prayer, which we looked at last week, and we said um, over his prayer, he did a number of things. He engaged his emotions with what was going on. He sat and wept, it said. He declared the truth about who God is, even though he didn't necessarily see it or perhaps even believe it. He interceded day and night for this situation. He spent time praying to God for what was going on for his people. He then confessed sin, his own sin, his family's sin, and the sins of the nation. And then he reminded God of God's word to them. He said, you've made promises to us, and we want to, we'd love to be able to see them you know, um, come about. And then he prayed a specific bold request. And his bold requests were, number one, he was going to go to his king, the king of Persia, and ask for leave of absence to go and lead this wall building project. And the second thing was, not only was he going to ask for leave of absence, he was going to ask for resources um, uh, to complete the task. And what happens if you read on into chapter two is that um, God answers the prayer, the king allows him to go, he goes and he gets the resources together and he leads the people in Jerusalem, not many of them left, the remnant of people in Jerusalem, he leads them in the task of rebuilding. And chapter 3 to 6 is all about that and it describes how despite serious opposition, Nehemiah was able to lead these people to complete the rebuilding project in only a matter of 52 days, less than two months. And as I said already, the reconstruction of this wall brought about safety to the people of Jerusalem. And it was summed up in chapter 6 here when he says, Once our enemies heard of this, all the nations around us were afraid. They fell greatly in their own esteem. And they perceived that this work had been done, had been accomplished with the help of God. And I want to focus on the later chapters to look at how God's people led them through the next step. The next step of renewal. Not just restoration of walls, but renewal of hearts. But one thing I just want to pick on, pick up on first, which is in chapter five. And I've got it. I don't have all the um, passages printed out, but I do have this one printed out. But if you look in your Bible, you'll see it's there. I'm not just faking you. Um, Chapter five, briefly. Let's just have a read of this. This is this is actually in the middle of the wall building process. This comes in in the middle of it. And Nehemiah says this, um, in fact, before I get to that, let me, I haven't got time to read all of these passages. During the process of the rebuilding, what has happened is that it has become clear to Nehemiah that some of the people 
are really struggling. Struggling with uh, getting enough food together, struggling with enough resources to live. Some of them had had a really poor harvest and there just wasn't enough grain for their large families. Some of them had had to mortgage their land in order to um, get the grain that they needed and the mortgages were running at a very high interest. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, Others had had to borrow money to pay their taxes to the Persian king, again at high interest rates. But the point is that the interest rates uh, were being set by people in their own community. And the people were unsatisfied and they were complaining. And they complained to Nehemiah and they said, this isn't fair. We're almost having to put our children into slavery in order that we can pay our taxes. There's something wrong here. And let me pick up in verse uh, verse 6 of chapter 5. Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and officials. I love the way, by the way, we saw this last week, and we've seen it again this week, that Nehemiah is so emotionally healthy. He doesn't just go and accuse the officials. He says, he, first of all, he feels the feels, and then he takes time to think about it. I pondered them in my, I was, first of all, I was very angry. And then I pondered these things in my mind. And then I acted. I went to accuse the officials. And I told them, verse 7, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Now, I should just go back and say, in the original laws that God set down through Moses for the Jewish people, all this sort of stuff was covered and dealt with. And these guys were breaking all those laws. Okay, they were charging far too much interest. They were kind of ripping their own people off, basically. He said, I said, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. And I, I mean... Gosh, you could do a whole bunch of stuff on just this chapter. And I had to cut loads out because I've got other things I want to say. But I did just notice that although God's people were busy building the walls, doing the physical work to protect their vulnerable community, actually Nehemiah has clocked that many of these people are vulnerable and not just from enemies from outside. They're vulnerable because of injustice within the community. And so he calls out the Jewish leaders. He says, you're oppressing your own people. This is unfair and you need to sort it out and pay them back and, and, and be fair. And they had nothing to say. And in the end, if you read on with the chapter, they do agree. They, they like put their hands up, guilty as charged. Yes, we'll do that. We'll, we'll pay it back and we won't do this again. Nehemiah was very angry. And he challenged the leaders to do that, to pay it back and to repent and to put things right. And it just struck me that in any scenario, whether it's us or people we know or people in another part of the world, people, whoever they are, are going to struggle to be open to connecting with God and receiving his kindness and his mercy if they are suffering injustice or inequality or unfairness. At the hands of others. It just struck me that this was something Nehemiah had to deal with before we got to the next part of the story. So this doesn't come after the walls are built. This happens in the middle of the walls being built. God is always on the side of the poor and marginalized. 
We know that his followers are expected to do the same and to be the same. And to call out injustice when we see it and to act against those who bring it about. And in the New Testament, we read about Jesus doing that. We know of great leaders through history who have done that. And here's an example of Nehemiah, this great leader, doing the same thing. What about us, though? Is there anything that's making us angry? Righteously, I mean. Angry for the right reasons. What about injustice or unfairness in our lives or in the lives of those around us? Is there anything that we need to call out? Maybe that's something God is challenging us to. I wanted to get to that because I think that's an important point to make before we get to the renewing of hearts. You see, as I said, if the first part of the chapter of the story of Nehemiah is about rebuilding walls, then this second part is about renewing hearts. The rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls was a significant step, but it wasn't the end of the story. God's people were safely back in Jerusalem. It's their spiritual and cultural home. Many have come back from exile. The temple has been rebuilt and worship is happening and functioning at the middle of their community like it had been previously to this 70-year hiatus. They've reconnected with the remnant of people, the very few people who were left there. And the city now has secure walls and secure gates For God, that's not enough. He's after more. He wants their hearts. You see, I reckon any decent father or mother will provide the resources and the shelter and the safety that their kids need. I know that that's what I'm supposed to do as a father. But I'm not interested in that being the limit of my relationship with my kids. I provide what you need. That's the end. I'm not interested in that. I'd be very bored and very unsatisfied. I am much more interested in relationship with my kids than robotic obedience. You know, I want my kids to enjoy coming and hanging out with me. I want them to come and relate to me as adults once they've grown up and, and done their thing. The relationship with God and his people at this point is very strained. It's kind of probably has been close to breaking point. It won't break, but it's strained. It's in need of some serious repair and some serious renewal. And the rest of this book is about Nehemiah and Ezra, who was the priest who was working alongside him, led the people into a renewal of their relationship with God. But it seems to me that this isn't just a nice story from the Bible or a lovely bit of history, that actually God is in the business of restoration and renewal right now, today in our lives and the lives of those people around us. Every Christian I know has had periods of time when they have felt really close to God and other periods of time when they have felt less close to God. Just give me a wink or a nod if if you can relate to that, okay? And if you can't, you're lying. No, I'm just teasing. Um, There are loads of reasons for this. And I have certainly experienced times in my life when I have felt very close to God and times when I felt quite far away. And as I can see, so have you. It might be because of a response to something that happened in our lives, like a crisis or an illness or a loss or something which left us with unanswered questions, something we just couldn't seem to connect with God through. I mean, COVID was that for many people. It might have been a deliberate decision that we made to just turn away from God and walk in a different direction because, I don't know, we just weren't feeling it or whatever. And then we just find that we're so far away, it's hard to get back. Maybe we feel some sort of shame or guilt because of something we've done or something that's been done to us. 
Or maybe it's just been a very slow drift. Unintentional, not something we'd have chosen, but we've made a little choice here and a little decision there. And we've just missed a meeting or two and dropped a relationship or two. And gradually we've found ourselves a long way away from God and and it's hard to know how to get back. And I look back on times in my life when I have felt far away from God. And as I reflect on them, I've come up with, I I think I've realized something really profound. And that's this. Most of the time, no, all of the time, it wasn't him who moved. Most, all of the time, every time, I was the one who moved. For whatever reason. Maybe right now, some of us here today are feeling really distant from God. I mean, if you are and you've come to church, good on you. It's a good start to be around God's people. But maybe you've got a, you know, maybe you've got a sort of fake smile on and actually you're not really feeling it right now. Maybe we've come to church because we need to know something of that renewal or that restoration, that closeness to God. Maybe you're here and you've never actually felt close to God before. But all this talk of God and love and fathering and all of that is something that sounds like something you might be interested in. If only you knew how to get there. And I want to encourage us, wherever we are, renewal and restoration is always possible. God is a loving father who wants nothing more than being close to his children. Okay, I think I'm a, well, my children will be the judge of this. I'm a half-decent father anyway. I try my best. And all I really want is to be close to my kids and for them to be close to me. And so if that's me, with all my failures and all my weaknesses, then how about God as a father? And so whether you've been a believer for a short time or a long time, whether you're feeling close to God or not, He is always looking for opportunities to draw each of us back into relationship with him and to renew hearts. And we're just going to take a look at three little passages of Nehemiah, starting in chapter 8, about how Nehemiah led God's people back into relationship with him and a renewal of hearts. The first thing that he did was around declaring truth. It can be so easy to lose sight of the truth of God. I said last week, we need to return to his word regularly and consistently to remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done. And if you look in chapter 8 uh, from verses 1, if you've got it on your, in the Bible on your phone, please follow with me because I'm going to read it out, but I don't have it up, up, up here. Um, what happened is <laughs> they'd been there and they'd built the walls and they'd just about settled down and figured out who everybody is. And quite a few of the chapters of Nehemiah, by the way, are just lists of all the people who came back, all the families, Okay. Um, Chapter 8, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. That's not water gate, that's the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. 
And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I'm not sure that right now in our generation, that's the kind of festival that we'd all whoop and holler about. Somebody standing at the front and reading the first five books of the Bible from daybreak till noon. But hey, this is what they were into. For them, this was a really big deal. The walls are securely in place. And so now, Nehemiah and Ezra are making their job to get the law of Moses, that which there's sort of guiding documents, there's guiding values and principles that have always been with God's people, and to put them back into the center of the life and the worship of God's people. Physical, physical security was never going to be enough to keep God's people close to God. They needed his word. Trust in him and obedience to his word. And it's the same for us. I mean, obviously, physical safety and security is important. And worshipping together in the church is great. But on its own, this gathering won't sustain us in our faith with God. We need to know his word. It won't keep us close to him. That will only come as we actively engage with his word and read and listen. So I can tell you all this stuff and tell you a bit about Nehemiah. And in about half an hour, we'll finish and you'll go home. And you get a choice. We all get a choice as to whether we're going to do something about it this week, whether we're going to look, put this stuff into practice in our lives, read it, chew on it, meditate it, on it, understand it, and think about how we apply it to our own lives. And that's the story that's playing out here in a slightly different cultural way among God's people in Jerusalem. So the priest is reading, Ezra is reading aloud for hours on end from the books of the law. And it's a little bit like a reenactment of the scenes that we've read before of Moses reading out the law to God's people when he first came down the mountain. It's a serious and solemn business, and it lasts a long time. And the people's response is a solemn response. It's to bow down low with their faces to the ground. And there's a sadness going on and a realization that their sin was something that upset God, was something that caused the caused a rift between them and God. Ultimately, the way God's people had acted was the reason that God allowed them to be captive, captured and the city burned down and they were taken off into exile. So their response is entirely appropriate, but it's interesting because if you read on in this passage, you read that Nehemiah actually instructed them not to weep and mourn, but to celebrate. Don't weep and mourn at this point, he says. Celebrate in your renewed relationship with God. You have an opportunity. We, as God's people, have an opportunity to uh, renew our hearts. Oh, hello. Can you just sort that out for me? Thanks. Um, We have an opportunity to do something about that and to uh, reenact and to renew this this thing. And so to formalize that, they celebrate a festival and all of that. Um, he actually, they actually remember the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is something that they haven't celebrated for ages and ages. And they, this is where God's people build tents in the desert and, and they live in there for seven days. And they remember how great, how great God was and how thankful they are and all of that. There's a renewal, not just of the word, but of acting on the word, of living it out, of rejoicing in God and of celebrating And so what about us? What does this mean for us? What does it mean to renew our relationship with God's word? How can we continue to make sure we're declaring the truth of God into every situation? How easy do we find it to engage with the Bible? 
It's coming, I, I, you might not all be on holiday or whatever, but it's, this is, the summer is a season where we tend to try and just kick back a little bit. How easy are we finding it to stay close to God? One thing I use is a brilliant app on my phone called Lectio 365. It's just a great way of, you can, you can listen to it. You don't have to, have to read it. Somebody will read it to you. That's just one way. There's tons of ways of getting into the Bible and accessing it. Audio Bibles, Bible reading notes, Bible reading apps. But it's really important that we make sure that we keep the truth of God's word in the center of our lives and our focus. We looked at this slide last week. This was just a Google search I did on truths from the Bible. Things that you can read in the Bible summarized here. Twelve different things that help us remember that whatever circumstance we're in, whatever's going on, these things are true. These things remain true. So the first thing that they did was to uh, declare truth. The second thing that Nehemiah led the people in doing was confessing sin. And if you look at chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles open, find chapter 9. I'm just going to read the first three verses. On the 24th day of the same month, this is, by the way, this is after they've celebrated the Feast of Booths, after they've eaten, drunk, and been merry, and just and, and, and really done the whole joyful thing. After that, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. And those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their places, and they confessed their sins, and the sins of their ancestors. And they stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. And they spent another quarter of the day in confession and weeping. Sorry, confession and worshipping the Lord their God. And it seems to me that this is where renewal gets real. You know, there will be a point if we're in, if our relationship with God has broken down, if we're finding ourselves distant, if we're finding ourselves away from God, then we can rejoice because he does want us back and he is grateful to see us. But in all relationships, if there's been a distance, there's usually, there needs to be a moment where somebody says, hey, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And in this case, it was a big deal. So this is where renewal gets real. We looked at Nehemiah doing this on behalf of the people last week. And now the people themselves are engaging in an act of confession. The stuff that's got in the way of their relationship. And there's actually 30 verses in this chapter that detail the Israelites saying, we did this, and then we did this, and this was good, and you looked after us here, and then we messed up, and we did that, and this is what happened. And then, we, and then you came back to us, and you've been faithful, God. And then we did this, and then we did, and this is what it goes on, 30 verses, kind of re, retelling that whole story until the point where they said, in verse 30, I'm just jumping down to chapter, chapter 9, verse 30, talking about their forefathers, the generation before them. They say, for many years, you, God, were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. That was the captivity, the capture, exile. But in your great mercy, God, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32, now therefore, our God, the great Mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. Please do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and our leaders and on our priests and our prophets and on our ancestors and on all your people from the days of King Assyria until today. 
Don't think of this as a small thing. We are acknowledging and owning our stuff. That's what God's people are saying. Although they're doing it, and at the same time, they know that God is gracious and merciful. And there's something here about confession, and I don't know how you approach confession. I personally have found the most helpful thing to be a very small little tool called the five R's. Okay? Now, if I feel like I've got to do business with God, and I know that I've messed up, <laughs> I was thinking about this small example this morning, by way of understanding. Very small example. We started worship this morning, and um, in my headphones, my keyboard was really distorted. And I had no idea why. It wasn't like that in the practice. It wasn't like in the sound check. And two songs in, I looked at Mark and I said, can I have a new battery for my pack? And uh, Mark came up to me and said, it's not the pack. You've got the distortion on on your keyboard. I turned it off and it sounded great. And I could have spent the next two songs going, what an idiot. That was all my fault. I turned it on earlier for something else. Forgot to turn it off. Let's go through the five R's. Number one, recognize your own sin. I did this. That was my mistake. Number two, repent, which means turn away from your sin. God, I won't do that again. I'm sorry. Number three, receive. Lord, I receive your love and I receive your forgiveness. You're a God of grace. You can tell that I pray this a lot, can't you? Number four, rebuke or renounce the enemy's schemes. Because the enemy will have a scheme and say, what did you do that for, you idiot? So just stupid, you've done that, you know, what, what, what's that all about? Feeling bad? I said, no, I rebuke the enemy's schemes. I'm a child of grace. My father loves me. I can mess up and he'll still forgive me. And then replace. What are you going to bring instead? Instead of sin and shame, God gives grace. Jesus died for us. And then there's a sixth one, which is rejoice. And I don't know if you've ever used that little tool before. It came from a... a what did it come from? can't remember. Some program that um, Hugh and Ginny were running before I came here, but it's brilliant. Is it called Living Free? Living Free. Just brilliant. Really, really simple, straightforward way of making things right with God and not making a big deal out of it. I don't know about you, but I have spent most of my adult life getting stuck around number four because I forgot to renounce the enemy, I was just quite happy to let the whole thing sit with me. You're such a sinner. You're such a bad person. You're so wrong. You're so immoral. You're so terrible. When are you ever going to be a decent pastor? When are you ever going to be a decent Christian, for goodness sake? Is it just me or does anybody else hear those words? Okay. But there's just no need. There's just no need. Confession. Um, Nehemiah leads the people in confession. So we've done declaration of truth and we've done confession. And the last one is this. Nehemiah leads the people in a new covenant promise. Now, covenant just means an agreement, a binding agreement, okay? It's interesting, isn't it? In Jeremiah, this isn't on my slide, but in Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. So this, what, what Nehemiah is leading the people through has been prophesied and planned. And the story of Nehemiah is on the way to that journey. So if you look later on in chapter 9, after declaring the truth and rejoicing and confessing their sins, the natural place for God's people to go next is to reaffirm their commitment to God and make a promise. 
And so they write it down. And in chapter 9, verse 38, it says, In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. Bam, out of battery again. Um, It's appropriate, isn't it? I go on holiday after today. Um, In view of all this, we're making a... We're making a binding agreement, verse 38, and putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So all of them, all of the big chiefs of the, the, cheese, the big cheeses, the, the, the leaders among them, all of them, and it continues in verse 28, chapter 9, verse 28, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand all these now join their fellow Israelites the nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses the servant of God and to obey carefully all the commands the regulations and the decrees of the Lord our Lord and then again there's a whole load of detail They promised basically to keep the law. It's the same law that Moses had laid down before, but which God's people had kind of wandered away from and drifted away from. Not to intermarry, to keep the Sabbath holy, to cancel debts every seven years, to tithe their first fruits and provide for temple of worship. And it it kind of, it's summed up in verse 39. It says, we will not neglect the house of our God which for them is everything. The temple and the worship of the temple is everything for God's people. That's not just their spiritual life, but it's the center of all life for them. We will not neglect the house of our Lord, God. We're going to basically pay attention to worship. We're going to pay attention to God's word. We're going to pay attention to our lives. We're going to live this thing out. For them, these promises and actions represented a return to the same promises that their ancestors have made generations before. And although it might seem to us just like a big set of rules, fundamentally, this wasn't just a set of rules. This is a commitment to worshipping God and putting him at the centre of their lives again. Now, worship for us looks a little bit different. And we're not perhaps bound by such a tight set of rules in the same way because we live beyond Jesus' death and his resurrection. But the invitation remains for us to put God at the center of our lives by intentionally connecting with Jesus. Is that something that we want to do? Is that something that we want to be committed to? If we find, by the way, that we've drifted away from God and we're in need of renewal in some way, then I would suggest to us that, that, that doing something like this, you know, Putting ourselves in the place where we can reconnect with God is something we should not just do once when we feel like it, but something we should schedule in If someone is really precious to us, then we plan time to be with them regularly, right? Jo said this thing to me. I don't know where she got it from. She said, we ritualize the things that are important. We make a ritual out of doing things that are important to us and sustain us. If we love us, I'm just looking here at Dave, who loves to go on a a windsurfer. And I was just thinking what you do, because you love to to relax after you've been working very hard. I know you work hard, but you know, you relax. And I see him on his social media and there he is on his windsurfer. It's like, it's my day off. That's what I'm doing. We ritualize the things that are important to us. We want to be with God and God's people. Then we come to church on Sunday. We want to get to know people in the church. Then we go to small group. There's an invitation there to make a ritual out of the things that keep us close to God. That's what they were saying they were going to do. 
We're going to do this, God. We're going to keep this thing up. We're promised to do this. And it's the same for us. It's not, oh, we might do this if we get some space, if we kind of, you know, have a bit of a gap in our schedule. Maybe we'll get to church if other stuff doesn't get in the way. Maybe I'll take time to pray today after I've done everything else. It's not about that. It's about putting these things first. That's what they did. And for some of us, I wonder if right now, here today, the invitation is there to recommit and reconnect to Jesus. And just one other thing, we're not celebrating communion today, but we regularly celebrate communion in this church. And of course, a new covenant is what Jesus said he was doing when he broke bread and gave it to his disciples and drank wine and gave that to his disciples. And it struck me that when Jesus said, you've got to take communion regularly, he said, why did he say to do it? He said, to do it in remembrance of me. And that is Jesus teaching his people, his followers, to act out this ritual of renewal, which Nehemiah is leading God's people through. And so the question for us today is what kind of promises or covenants have we made with God in the past? Maybe there are things that you have committed to, or that I have committed to, that we have committed to in the past, and we think, eh, drifted away from that a bit. Is there anything that God is inviting us to do today in terms of a recommitment or a renewal? How can we demonstrate that God has our whole hearts? So whether it's declaring the truth, or whether it's confessing our sin, whether it's making new covenant promises, I wonder where we are on our journey of renewal today. And I just want to encourage us that wherever we are, God really wants to meet with us. He really wants to bless us. He really wants to draw us in. He really wants to invite us on to the next step. And what I love us to do right now is to stand together and just to invite the Holy Spirit to come and see if there's anything that he wants to do in our midst as we think these things through. I'm not going to read it all, but there's a whole passage in Ezekiel, another of the prophets of uh, the Old Testament, where God says, just so you know, you might be in exile now, but I have a plan for restoration and renewal for you. I'm going to take you out of the nations. I'm going to gather you from the countries. I'm going to bring you back to your own land. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'm going to put my spirit in you to move you and to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws and then you will live in the land I gave to your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God and on it goes promises that God is making to his people he was able to do this for a whole nation how much more can he do it for individuals wherever we are here and now why don't we just close our eyes and maybe you want to open your hands there's nothing special or magic about it, but it's just symbolic of saying, Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm here and I'm available and I'm ready for whatever you want to give to me or whatever you want to say to me. And Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here. We've read a story about a whole nation who rebuilt walls and got to a place of safety and then renewed hearts and restored their covenants and became yet again a people of God. And Lord, that's who we want to be. 
And so for each of us now, wherever we're at, Holy Spirit, would you come and speak? We are open to you and we will wait. We will wait for you. We will wait for you, God.